You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Civics. Civics, Civics 101. This is not my mic. Wait. Yes, it. it is. Hold on. Yeah. I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking. My level's just weird. It's fine. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And this is Civics 101. Today, yes. our episode is on the NIH. The National Institute of Health. The National Institutes of Health. The toots. Okay, yeah. so what, what, what does that mean? That means that within the NIH, there are other institutes that are doing specialized research. Oh, okay. And, so how, and how are they a Civics 101 topic? Well, we pay for the research done by NIH institutions and the institutions that the NIH funds. So who's going to explain it to us? Um, so my name is Dr. Carrie Wallinitz, and I am in the office of the director at the National Institutes of Health, where I serve as both the associate director for science policy, as well as the acting chief of staff to the NIH director. So why don't we just start very basic. What is the primary role of the NIH in the United States? So the mission of the National Institutes of Health is to seek fundamental knowledge about the nature and behavior of living systems, and then we apply that knowledge in order to enhance health, lengthen life, reduce illness, and disability. So essentially, we are a research funding agency whose goal is to improve the length and quality of human life and health. And when you say institutes of health, Hannah told me uh, that the NIH stands for institutes, not institute. How many institutes comprise the NIH? So there are 27 institutes and centers which range from institutes that are disease-focused, so for example, the National Cancer Institute, to institutes that are more focused around organ systems, like the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, to institutes that are really about uh, engineering fundamental discovery and the research pipeline itself, for example, our National Center on Advancing Translational Sciences. And where does the NIH get the money for all these institutes? So we are a federal agency, so we get appropriations from Congress, and uh, the institutes and centers each get their own congressional appropriation, uh, and uh, so that funding comes directly from Congress and the American taxpayers. Can you tell me about how much money the NIH gets uh, year to year? Um, so our uh, current uh, appropriation is right around $37 billion. Uh, but importantly, uh, between 1998 and 2003, there was a significant investment in the National Institutes of Health. The um, budget of the research agency doubled at that time. And that was a reflection of a strong bipartisan support um, in Congress uh, that remains to this day. So when something like 
an Ebola outbreak happens in the U.S., you know, we did an episode actually on the CDC, and I think of that as the organization that takes care of an infectious outbreak, but it sounds like the NIH is the institution conducting the research. So how does that work? Are you are you guys developing the the vaccines, the medication, the new information? That's exactly right. So there are a couple of roles NIH might play depending on the shape of the outbreak. Um, certainly, we are very involved in um, working closely with the CDC uh, for the next stage of developing medical countermeasures. And those might be vaccines, they might be medications, um, they might be diagnostic technologies. In addition, um, if it is a emerging um, virus or or disease that we don't know much about. For example, when SARS um, first uh, became a, a public health issue, um, NIH might be involved in some of the very fundamental identification and characterizing of whatever that um, infectious agent or disease causes. So is the head of the NIH appointed, is this a political appointee by the president like the heads of other agencies? Yes. So um, uh, NIH has two presidential appointees and only two. Um, The head of the National Institutes of Health is a presidential appointee, and so is the head of the National Cancer Institute. I'm also very interested in what extent politics can guide the kind of research that you're doing. Um, Like, let's take something slightly controversial, like stem cell research or maybe research for the opioid crisis. How do politics play into the kind of funding you get? I think certainly um, NIH has been very fortunate in that we are largely a um, uh, apolitical agency and that we do have the strong bipartisan uh, support. But certainly, if you look at how things rise to sort of the level of national consciousness, like the opioids crisis, that can be translated um, into additional funding for the agency. Um, Sometimes, uh, as in the other example you mentioned, stem cells, that uh, becomes a policy conversation where we think about the framework and the terms and conditions we might put on our researchers about the kinds of research that that we fund. Um, But But for the most part, I I would say that NIH tends to stay outside the political fray, and we've been very fortunate to have this widespread support to really focus on our, our mission of science and improving human health. So I'm curious how the public does benefit from the research that the NIH funds. Can you point to any specific discoveries or advances in medical science that have come out of NIH funded research? Oh, sure. Some of the rapid uh, improvement we've seen in death rates from cardiovascular disease where they're they're down significantly can be traced back to things like um, the use of statins for control of of cholesterol, which uh, stems directly from NIH-supported fundamental research. Recent cancer therapies like the cutting-edge immunotherapies, CAR T-cells are a, a term you may hear a lot. The antiretroviral therapies that have really transformed HIV AIDS from a sort of death sentence terminal illness to a chronic condition um, to which people are living to a normal lifespan. All of those discoveries have their roots in in NIH-supported research. We're going to take a quick break, but stay tuned for more NIH coming up on Civics 101. Welcome back to Civics 101. We're talking to Dr. Carrie Wallenitz about the NIH. So are there any fun new projects that the NIH is working on that we should keep our eyes out for? 
Well, certainly um, we're very excited about the new opportunities presented by gene editing technologies and the ability to create the next generation of gene therapies to cure genetically based diseases. So for example, sickle cell anemia, which was one of the first diseases identified from a molecular level. Um, uh, It's been a century now that we've known the cause of of sickle cell anemia. Um, We are almost at the cusp of actually being able to cure that disease through gene therapy. And, you know, we hope that within the next five, maybe 10 years or so, we will actually see a cure for sickle cell anemia or other similar diseases that um, we could potentially uh, approach with uh, new gene editing technologies. So I'm so curious, when there are all of these research studies going on, and for example, with sickle cell anemia, you say that you're getting close to a cure. Where are these results going? And are private sector institutions accessing these results and then furthering those studies, getting you even closer? Yes. So the way it essentially works is um, most of the money that NIH gets does not actually reside at NIH. So 80% of our budget um, goes out from NIH to research institutions, universities, um, academic medical centers all over the country. And it really is the best and brightest scientists from all over the United States and all over the world who are using that money to address research questions to help us understand um, the fundamentals of disease and how to how to use that knowledge to actually lead to therapies and, and treatments and, and cures for those diseases. There is then a often a handoff to the private sector who essentially depends on that federally funded, publicly supported research um, to be able to uh, move the ball forward and develop, um, whether it's vaccines or, or drugs, uh, a lot of that is facilitated by the, the research funded by NIH. So who has access to this sort of open source information? Do I, does Hannah, can we go to a website and see this research? Yeah, so NIH is a very transparent agency. Um, certainly all of the projects that we fund are available uh, on our website through a, a site called NIH Reporter, and you can um, get as into the weeds on those projects as you want to get. Um, uh, And some of them are very weedy indeed. In addition, um, we require all of the publications that come out from NIH-funded research to be available um, uh, to the public through our National Library of Medicine's um, uh, uh, PubMed site. I got a quick question I'm sort of curious about. Um, Do you guys Mm -hmm. mind if I jump in? No, Taylor, go ahead. Okay, so I just remember a few years ago when then-Vice President Joe Biden... He had lost his son, and he made this big call for the sort of moonshot of cancer, this idea that there was going to maybe be this huge injection of funding. Um, and and I read, I think I read an article back then that sort of talked about this grant-based process and that it makes it hard in some ways to maybe have this big coordinated push. And I'm just wondering, are there any downsides or limitations to that sort of funding model where you're, you know, you're putting lots of different ideas and projects out there and you're funding lots of different things? Um but it's maybe a little bit scattershot, right? 
So the so the cancer moonshot is still going strong. So let me start uh, start with that. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's a little bit like managing your investment portfolio. It's um, making sure that you've got the appropriate balance of both soliciting from kind of the best and brightest scientists across the country their original ideas on kind of a grant by grant basis, while at the same time as a um, agency and an institution that has this overarching view, paying attention to when the time is right to put in a big bolus of funds. So it's really making sure we've got this balanced portfolio of sort of big centralized initiatives like the All of Us Research Program, like the Cancer Moonshot, like the Brain Initiative, which we didn't uh, uh, talk about, um, uh, with that um, portfolio of uh, really bright individual ideas from scientists across the country. So how important do you think it is this public handoff? How important do you think it is that this is a public biomedical health research institution? Incredibly important. I think um, one of the reasons that NIH has um, been fortunate enough to have such strong public support is because there's been long recognition that um, the government plays a critical role in supporting basic research discovery and fundamental science that is frankly too high risk for the private sector to necessarily get involved in because you don't know where it's going to lead you at the end of the day. Although um, history shows us that in fact, that basic research is ultimately what leads us down the road to medical advancement. But it is really a sort of critical government role to be able to support that fundamental research and build that foundation of knowledge that can then be taken by private industry and turns into the next um, generation of therapies and technologies and um, uh, approaches to really improve human health. That was Dr. Carrie Wallenitz, Associate Director for Science Policy at the NIH. Today's episode was produced by Taylor Quimby. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Our team includes Jimmy Gutierrez, Justine Paradise, Ben Henry, and Jackie Helbert. Music in this episode is from David Hillowitz. We don't have more than one institution, but we do have lots of past episodes to check out. They do tend to pop up on the news cycle, don't they? They do, don't you can they? set your watch to it. So if you're ever feeling especially bamboozled by something you've read in the headlines, check out our list of previous topics at civics101podcast.org. Or you can leave us a question and we'll see if we can get to the bottom of it pronto. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And I'm Nick Capodice. Civics 101 is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.